as a manager, you can only grow if you get the feedback from your employees and they obviously want different things from you. So I think that interaction with your colleagues, with your peers, with your supervisors, with your employees, like the 360 view is what actually defines you as a person, as an employee or as a manager. Hello, I'm Emma Nelson, and this is The Big Interview on Monocle 24, our one-on-one show where people with fascinating lives, enviable careers and plenty of tales sit down to tell us how they got to where they are today, what inspires them and what makes them tick. My guest today is a leader in the human resources world, whose CV reads like a vertical rocket pointing upwards. Janina Kugel was for five years the Chief Human Resources Officer of Siemens. Her work led to her being described by Der Spiegel as Germany's most prominent manager. She's now a non-executive board member for several international companies, as well as an advisor to the German government on employment and also on digitization. Janina is a champion for diversity in leadership and also in the workforce. She says when you're different, you can look beyond the obvious and you can see what others don't see. Her latest book, It's Now, calls upon the working world to take the rules we know so well and to change them. Well, I'm delighted to say Janina joins me now from her home in Munich. Hello, Janina. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on the programme. Um, we need to begin right at the beginning. You you grow up in Stuttgart in the 1970s. And at what point do you suddenly think, oh, I'm interested in people, I'm interested in leadership? Oh, well, actually, that came much later, right? I mean, you know, like school and then you grow up and you go to university. And I was always thinking, you know, also when you think about like what is entertaining you, um, what were the professors that you were actually, that you went to, to all of the last sessions? And when were the things that you didn't go to? It was always the question of like, who was the person who was teaching? And it was always about is like, was that a fascinating person or not? And so it came to me that I thought, okay, whenever I think that something is entertaining and someone is entertaining me, I'm interested in the topic. So what it is about, and that was pretty much my early understandings of leadership, because at the very end, I always believe is if we like doing something, it's because we like usually being with people, working with them. And that is usually having a good manager. And what was it about the lecturers and the teachers who made you go back for more? What was the little magic sparkle that made your eyes sparkle or made little Yanina's brain fire up? You know, I mean, there is so much that you need to study at school, at university. And there's so much that you actually don't like. But if there is someone who actually takes the most fascinating things and tells you this could be, you know, curious, that's your curiosity or engages with that, then it makes it more entertaining. So there were different topics and there were sometimes, you know, I love topics that I never was interested in before just because I like the teacher, or I like the professor. And I think we can all recall that. And then later on in my professional life, There were always managers I love to work for and I love to work with. And there were others where I honestly hoped that that project was over or that I would like soon find a different job. And so this is what always kept me. And this is where I thought to myself is like, if you ever become a manager, I want to be a person that people like to work with. And hopefully I succeeded in that. Were there any heroes or role models growing up in the the 70s and 80s, possibly outside work or outside school, that made you you decide that you wanted to go into the direction you had or or just simply inspired you as a person? I was always thinking, and, and actually I was thinking about that when I wrote my book, 
And it was always people that were courageous, people that were trying to do something new. Like Nelson Mandela was my hero when I was a teenager, right? Because I thought, okay, this guy is taking so much on his shoulders. I'm not saying that the, he has been the most perfect president and afters, but he was definitely a game changer for South Africa. And there were other people that I thought were fascinating, but I am not so much into like finding that one and only role model because I think every human person or every human being is only a person. And I think there's always good things about people and there's also not so good things about people. So I always advocate for having more people that you can look up to. And there's also people that I would like to be like them. And then I'm trying to copy them. So I think this is more what I see. And there's inspiration coming from so many different areas. And obviously, role models or people that you look up to change with your own growth. You mentioned Nelson Mandela, arguably one of the world's ultimate outsiders who then becomes a leader himself. And you've said in the past that you found time and time again in your life what it feels like not to be part of the group as a child because of the colour of your skin, later at work because you were often the only woman. Yanina, when were you first made aware of the fact that you might be a little bit different from everybody else, or, or rather you were made to feel different from everybody else? So that was actually early on in my, I think it was like three or four years old, walking home from kindergarten back in those days, you know, you could still walk there on your own. And I was passing a soccer field and there were other kids playing football or soccer and I wanted to join them. And so I was kind of like, you know, standing there hoping that anyone would ask me to join the game. But then they were only looking at me and called me by the N-word. And that was the moment that I was running home to my parents. And then I obviously I hadn't really kind of understood what actually happened, but I knew something that I didn't really like and it didn't feel good. And so I went home and run home and told my parents and they explained, right? And so the point is like, you know, when you grow up in Germany, in an, at least where I grew up, it was mostly white people. And you're one of the only or the only black person then of course it makes something with you. And I think every one of us who is different than the group is, I mean, it could be the color of your skin, it could be your size, it could be that you're skinny, it could be that you're a little bit chubby or that you have red hair, it feels different. And I think children are especially cruel on that, right? Because they have not yet the social behavior of like maybe thinking certain things, but not speaking them out loud. And so that is the moment that I realized it. But I always want to encourage people that feel different, or maybe they are different when it comes to the groups of majority, of like saying, it does not always have to be an impediment. It can also make you grow stronger. Because once you have learned to be different, you can make use of it. And I personally believe the fact that, you know, I had to learn that all my life was helping me a lot later on in my professional life, when you're a manager, you take decisions that not everyone likes and not everyone loves you for whatever you decide. And that fact of like still progressing with whatever was on my mind, I think that was very helpful. How did you navigate that? I mean, you're clearly the victim of some something horrible and racist at a very small age. And yet, a, a, you know, a four-year-old child isn't going to quite get the perspective and the context and the sheer consequence of what is said to you. But obviously at that point you realise that there's something not quite right. Does something change in your life there as an approach there or is there something from your parents? Or what is it that makes you think, okay, I, I'm going to have to accept that things are different here and, and then how you start to navigate your way through it? 
I mean, obviously, I think for every children, I mean, you know, it's the parents and the social context that they're living in, whether they, they support you in being strong and not feeling like a victim, but taking the best out of the situation, whatever you're in, is very, very helpful. And definitely, I have to say, that was helpful for me. But when you start realizing that you can actually path the way for others, right? That you can say others, okay, you don't have to become the victim. Yes, the world is cruel. Racism exists. Discrimination exists. And we know that. And we have seen that lately over the last years. I mean, dramatically. Sometimes we believe in societies that things are in big progress. And I believe that sometimes we also have to realize it's not. But taking the strength out of it, like becoming or being resilient, and by the way, resilience is something that you can train. I think this makes the trick, not feeling like a victim, but saying, hey, I got a strength and a power that not everyone has. And so I take that as an advantage. There's this thought, though, that your career path has always been seen as this fabulously organized, beautifully planned and designed and ultimately successful one. Uh, do I assume that that was not necessarily the case by the fact that I can see you right this moment and you're smiling and laughing? This is the right assumption, right? Every CV pretty much like only says, I mean, these are the jobs that you were doing and this is what you achieved and maybe also what you didn't really achieve. But of course, I mean, when you when you plan something, to a certain extent, I believe that you can plan careers. At least I knew at some point I wanted to work in an international environment. So that means you have to work all around the globe um, to get different experiences, like in strategic roles and more operational roles. So these are things that you can outline. But then from there on, it also happens to be in the right moment at the right place to take opportunities whenever they are offered to you. And very often I change jobs, not because I wanted so badly go into a different position or to a different country, but I got an opportunity where I was thinking to myself, if I say no to it, will I regret it or not? If I would not regret it, I said no. But if I thought I might regret it in six months from now, I took the opportunity. So, but a curriculum vitae or a CV is showing some things, but it definitely never shows who you are as a person. And I was just like recently holding a graduation speech to young students and I told them the moments of defeat, the moments when you get critical feedback, they are obviously not the things that you like, but these are the moments that you grow most. And you might actually not realize that in that very moment, but when I'm looking back into all of the experiences and obviously I'm still learning, it's the moments that things did not work perfectly that I remember And it's the feedback that I got, which was critical, where people told me, Janina, you could have been doing better and this is how you could have done. These are the moments that you remember. And what did that teach you about your managerial style? Giving people the freedom, the space, giving feedback, but also receiving feedback. Because also as a manager, you can only grow if you get the feedback from your employees. And they obviously want different things from you. So I think that interaction with your colleagues, with your peers, with your supervisors, with your employees, like the 360 view, is what actually defines you as a person, as an employee or as a manager. Tell us a little bit about how your career actually progressed in your sideways, backwards, forwards, but nonetheless very dynamic <laughs> path that it took. You have worked for some of the most traditional organisations and yet you have always been associated as being a champion of diversity. So how do those two stories run together or knit in with each other? Well, you know, every large organisation and Siemens at that point that I was working there, we have we had 380,000 employees all around the globe, so which is really a huge organisation. 
And then to believe that one definition is describing 380,000 people in their culture, I think would be a mistake. So every organization has a certain tradition and every organization has pockets of excellence, pockets of people that are different. And then I think it really depends on, I mean, so is Siemens a traditional German engineering company? Yes, it is. I mean, that's where it comes from. But if you look at it today, it's totally different. And what I always believe that if you want to change things, you need to understand the system, but you also need to be courageous again to change the things that you would like to have differently. And then there's organizations that allow that, that actually appreciate employees having different perspectives, bringing those different perspectives in. And there are organizations that don't appreciate that. Siemens has always been an organization that appreciated that. At least that's my experience. And I think that was the moment when at the beginning I thought I would maybe stay there for three years. At the very end, I stayed there for 19 years, which I think was more than I ever thought when I was in my early 30s. There's a moment that you often speak about is when you're standing in the queue in your jeans in the canteen and you are at Siemens and people look at you differently. What, tell us about that story and its significance. Well, you know, I mean, I'm a coffee addict and a coffee lover. I have been studying in Italy and I have been working and living in Italy for several years of my life. And those of you that have ever been in Italy, you know that coffee is a very important thing and grabbing, you know, an espresso and having a chat is essential. So that was why I went everywhere, wherever I was working, to where you could get the best coffee, you know, in a coffee shop. And then, of course, in certain organizations... It's kind of like, you know, the tradition that if there's a high ranking manager coming up, that he or she does not stand in the line. And I'm thinking to myself, why? Only because I'm the CEO of that organization. Obviously, within an organization, most of the people know who you are. I mean, that does not mean that I cannot stand in the line like everyone else. So I stood in the line and I was wearing sometimes jeans just because I was in the mood for wearing jeans. And just because I thought nothing is changing in my brain, in my mind, in my head, whatever I'm wearing, right? I was still appropriately dressed, right? I mean, normal jeans, no jeans with holes. My father was always afraid that I would actually wear those as well, right? And, and the interesting thing is, like, it made a lot to people, first of all, because they saw someone from the sea level standing in the line. And the more interesting thing for me was, it was a moment for everyone, pretty much like everyone speaking to me. And they told me what was really going on. They approached me and said, hey, Miss Kugel or hey, Janina, can I ask you a question? I am that and that person. I'm working this in this department. And this is what we hear and this is what we see. So for me, it was a moment of real truth. My former assistant, when I said, I'm going to grab a coffee, you know, which usually takes five minutes, she was always like rolling her eyes, knowing that I would not return to the office at least for the next 20 minutes because I would stand there and speak to people. But I think that was a changing point. And it was very funny for me if at some point, you know, in my departure month, someone approached me and said, hey, thank you for always being in the coffee line and thank you for being approachable. So it made obviously a big change for people. I think there are still a lot of people and managers and leaders that are asking their assistants to bring them coffee or to actually even buy them lunch. That is not my style, has never been my style and won't ever be my style. In fact, the time that you have been getting people coffee or have been asked to get people coffee is when you've actually been in the boardroom as a senior manager and someone has 
not necessarily realise quite who you are. How how often has that happened to you? So that was that was happening when I was like a little younger, right? And as you were mentioning in the beginning, you know, I was very often the only woman. You know, when I was still in consulting, I was working in industries where there were not a lot of female people. And the assumption that people took, and that's the stereotype of the bias that we have in our mind, there is a lot of men back then in suit and in ties, and there, there is a young black woman. And the assumption was I would be someone to bring the coffee. And so I said, hey, I'm not here to bring them um, the coffee. I'm the project leader or whatever I was in that place. And that was actually more embarrassing for the people because then they were like, ah, ah, sorry, sorry. And I only said to them, next time, think twice. You know, because it is like, and that's also a recommendation that I can, I can give to other people is like, we all have those bias, right? When you think about like the, the stereotypes that we have in our brain and every one of us have them. Who believes he or she doesn't have them. I can only recommend to do the implicit association tests that you find on the site, on the website of the Harvard University, which after 15 minutes gives you crystal clear that every human being has a bias. But in order to overcome those bias, you know, those unconscious bias, you have to consciously think about it. And the conscious thinking is maybe not the youngest person, maybe not the black person, maybe not a woman is going to be the person who brings coffee. By the way, I think in most of the meetings, there is no one who is serving coffee anymore. It must be mentioned that you are working in a country where the leader has been a woman for the best part of two decades. Um, Has that changed anything about German society and German management style? I think Angela Merkel, our chancellor, has been very clearly showing a leadership style that was more inclusive than we have seen from any other chancellors or from other prime ministers or presidents in, around the world, not as egoistic and not as selfish. Um, so there was definitely a lot of change that she brought to the company. When it comes to diversity and um, gender diversity, I would have liked to have more from her. I would have been expecting more. But the funny thing is, I think she actually sees that herself. And when you look at how things are changing, I also understand. So what I want to say is like, yes, we have had a German, uh, a female chancellor for 16 years nearly. But that does not mean that the entire society in Germany is at that level as well. One thing that you said in the past in terms of your managerial style and your hiring and firing is that you've deliberately gone out of your way to hire someone, even though they are exhausting. Now, many people would run away from that answer. The idea of walking down a corridor and seeing someone who you know who you're going to speak to and you know is going to exhaust you. I think many people decide that they hire and fire on the basis that if they see each other in the in the office, that they, would, they will stop and have a coffee with them for five minutes rather than run away. What is it about this exhausting element that so fascinates and entices you? If you have a person in your team that thinks like you, speaks like you, has the same experiences, that's easy to work with, right? I mean, you always agree on the same things, you have the same line of thinkings and all is good. But if you have a person that is continuously challenging you, it's exhausting because you have different arguments and you have to debate and you have to fight and you have to argue. But at the very end, the results are much better because you bring in more perspectives. And that is why I started to love to work with people with different experiences, even though sometimes it is annoying and sometimes it's actually also very tough because the results are better. And the funny thing is like once you get used to it and once you have established, and I think this is a very important part, 
you need to establish a culture of trust that different thinkings and different opinions does not mean that you don't like each other, that you do not respect each other as a person, right? There's also people that become then very bossy and say, hey, I have it right and I know it. But if you have that very clear as an understanding in your team, that the basic is that there is trust and respect, and then on top of that come the different perspectives, you get fantastic results. And I enjoy that. And also, especially because I'm learning from other people. And that's fun. When was it that you were then having your voice being added to that discussion very, very publicly? Because not only were you succeeding inside at Siemens, Der Spiegel was talking about you, Bilt was talking about you, you were doing TED Talks, the German government was bringing you in. Suddenly, the Janina Kugel leadership expert from inside Siemens becomes a global voice. What was that like? I think I, I did that when I realized that I had become a role model, even though I'm not, as you heard in the beginning here, I don't like that too much. But when I realized that other people were looking up to me because they said, it seems that you're just like me. And if you can do it, then I can maybe do it as well. So it became very important. And it was very important also for me, you know, if you have reached a certain leadership position, if you walk the talk. So if I could go home early to spend time with my children, to have dinner together with the family and then go back to work. If I can do that as a top manager, then everyone else can do that as well. So by creating the space, you will also give more flexibility to everyone else. Um, and I also realized, and this is what I did together with many other women in the last year, pushing the German government to finally introduce a gender quota for board positions, executive management team, which they had been avoiding for nearly 20 years, that we pretty much like became the voice of people living in the country, of citizens, and not being willing to make the compromises, but to bring the factual arguments and explain them why progress also requires change. How does it feel? Weird at times, you know, and also because sometimes people write stuff about you. You know, I remember like sometimes my old friends calling me and said, this is so funny what I'm reading about you in the papers. But then you also learn to understand that there is a private Janina and then there is a public Janina. And as long as you get it still right in your own head, it's okay. If there's one thing that you want the world of work to have, have learned from your experience, if the public Janina has one message to give... Um, what would it be if you want us to remember you for one thing? I would think, you know, you can only stay at the top, whoever you are, a country, an organization or a person, if you are willing to change. And sometimes that means that you need to be courageous to go there as a the first person to do it differently. And the second thing, always find people working with you, working for you that are completing you. Because we are good at certain things. But if you bring in people that are just better than you in some areas. That, I think, changes the game. Let's move to the world of work and the future of the world of work. You talked about good leaders having the power to change and having courage. The pandemic has made us all have a rather a lot of those things and to change and to be flexible. What did you see managers get right and where did they get it wrong in the last 18 months or so? I think they got it right when some that had not understood it finally before that, yes, people do work from home and yes, productivity is actually increasing. And yes, people are not hanging around there being lazy, but they do their jobs and they do it well, even though you're not controlling them. 
You know, that's kind of like a, a very old fashioned saying, that's not my belief, but this is what many people did. And I think that was a very good and positive thing. What I think a lot of people and a lot of leaders and managers were lacking was empathy, like trying to stay in touch with your people. Because what happens is you cannot just like, you know, grab a coffee together and walking by and have a chit chat. That meant over the last 18 months that you had to talk to people explicitly and implicitly. You had to make time and to give room to every meeting that you had to ask. How are you? How are things going? How many kids do you have at home? I mean, how is life, you know, being stuck there in the lockdown, depending on where you were? And that is also when you see the results, what happened to people and when they got kind of like, you know, mentally lost or emotionally lost to an organization because they did not feel that their managers were there for them and for their personal issues. And so I always recommend the three minutes at the beginning of every meeting, and maybe sometimes it's seven and sometimes it's only one minute, to talk about how are you, but in a real way. Is all good? Can I do something for you? That is what many managers don't do. But those minutes are the best invested minutes ever. You mentioned the idea of flexibility and working from home. I think many of us are in the position where working from home is something that we no longer want to do. We've had more than our fill, more than our enforced fill of it. And there is a joy and a sheer pleasure in the serendipity of sitting next to someone all day and just being with them and allowing ideas to flow naturally. How can you do that when you still have working from home? I believe that flexibility for me means you can do both. And then it depends on what are the tasks that you're working in. Do you need your colleagues? I mean, if you want to have creativity in the room, if you want to come up with new ideas, of course you are better working in a team. But if you have to work on a concept or write a piece or something like that, I mean, when the best thing is like to be silent and highly focused and concentrated, you can do that from anywhere where you get the silence. And flexibility for me means is understanding when can you do what and having managers that yes, can tell their teams, listen, next week, whatever, Wednesday, Tuesday, I want everybody in the office because I want to speak about this and about that. And then people do understand that. But for the rest of the time, trust in your employees, trust in the results, and do not control the times that they are present. Tell me about your new book, It's Now. Subtitle Labeled Führen, Arbeiten, Wir kennen die Regeln, jetzt ändern wir sie. You want to change the rules. You've always been not necessarily a rule breaker, but someone who hasn't been afraid to take their own path. Which rules should we be breaking now? I think when you look at um, what the pandemic has shown, when you also look about, um, think about globalization, digitization, automation, we need to become quicker. We need to become faster. We need to understand that we have to learn new skills, every one of us, unless you retire next year. And I think this brings a total different approach to work like the than the last industrial revolutions. And so for me, that flexibility is something that we have to change. That comes to our the legislation that is in place is not made for flexible working hours. It's usually very, very traditional. You know, you work in shifts, you come, I don't know, from eight to five, you know, that's still the thinking. And on the other hand, I think our educational systems are, and there's none in the world that I would give the credit to be much better. You go to school, then you maybe go for an education and this is it. But that is not the case. So I think these are definitely some of the rules that we have to change. And sometimes in order to change something, you also have to break with all things. But that's just like two ideas um, that will have an impact, I believe, on every one of us working. 
finally, if you had a young Janina Kugel sitting next to you, about 10 or 11, just about to go and hit the snowboarding slopes and decide whether, what she wants to do when she grows up, what would you be telling her right now? Do something that you definitely enjoy. Yes, you still have to listen to your parents. At least I had to do that. But always believe in your own dreams and they will change. I think when I'm thinking back about what I wanted to be with 15, with 20, with 25 or with 45, it was different things. And believe in yourself and be courageous. And whatever you decided, you can always take a different decision if you want. And have fun. You know, as much as you were speaking about my fabulous career, and yes, it's true, I was working many, many hours. One of the biggest, uh, the best compliments that I ever got from a friend of mine that I went to university with, she always said is like, no, Janina, you were always ambitious. You were always highly engaged, but you were always my best partner in crime to go to a party. And I think that's important as well. Listening to the big interview with me, Emma Nelson, in conversation with Janina Kugel. The big interview is produced by Emma Sell, edited by Steph Chungu, and researched by Sophie Monaghan Coombs. Do keep an eye and an ear out for next week's instalment of the big interview, in which Monocle's Andrew Muller speaks to the legendary cricketer Michael Holding. For now, though, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye and thanks for listening.